Good morning, church. It's good to see you. I did notice that thing Jacob did where he said, if you're serving in children's ministry, you'll be down there for 35, 50 minutes. It's fair. It's truthful. I also got the, uh, the gist of Jacob's message, which is if you care at all that he and Kathy not burn out, please serve. That was, I think, like the underlying message of, of your announcement. Um, speaking of many announcements, I have a special announcement to make today before we jump into to God's Word. Um, and so we are going to be in Matthew 28. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be looking at that shortly, Matthew 28. Um, but before I do that, as pastors, one of the great and most significant responsibilities that we have uh, is the responsibility to entrust the gospel to the next generation of pastors. And there are many ways in which we seek to do that here, uh, including our commitment to upholding the very high calling and biblical standards of pastoral ministry. So uh, to raise up pastors in our church, that looks like being a part of a years-long program uh, of pastoral training and that I take responsibility for overseeing and leading. Uh, you're reading uh, uh, you know, tons of books, and there are papers to be written and graded. There is uh, sermons that must be preached and graded. There are formal evaluations by the team, plus there is the uh, oh-so-scary written and oral exams administered by our region's ordination committee. So all that to say, it takes a lot to become a pastor here. Uh, we do up high, uphold those high standards, uh, which means I have all the more joy when I announce today that our own Merrick Potter has finally completed all of those requirements. He has read a mountain of books. He has graduated from the Sovereign Grace Pastors College with honors, which Jacob and I did not do. He passed the written and the oral exams with flying colors, and Merrick has been officially and unanimously approved for ordination by the elders in our region. So that's something to celebrate. Your pastors are enthusiastically commending Merrick's godly character, his pastoral gifting, and his ability to lead. Uh, we thank God for you, Merrick. And we thank God for you, Abby. Thank you for being a wife devoted to your husband, a woman who loves this church, loves God's word, a devoted mom as well. You are a gift to us also. We see so much grace in their lives, uh, and yet for all that they have accomplished, all that they have sacrificed, all that they have given up and done, uh, there is still one more thing needed before we ordain Merrick. You're probably wondering, what in the world more could you possibly do to this poor guy? He's already shown that he's more gifted and smarter than you are, Jace, well, at least humbler and smarter than you are. So what could you possibly want and do with him? Well, what we need is your input and evaluation. We believe that the active involvement of the congregation is vital in the confirmation of a man and his call to ministry. Uh, I, we want you to understand, we simply would not ordain a man who did not enjoy broad affirmation from this church. And so, uh, even though informally many of you have already uh, voiced your affirmation uh, to Merrick's call to ministry, we want to now formally invite you to submit in writing uh, your observations of grace, your affirmations, but also if you have any critiques or concerns regarding Merrick being made a pastor here. And I trust you understand we're not inviting your concerns out of a desire to hear gossip or anything like that, but we want to give opportunity to stop the process uh, if there is information we have not had access to in evaluating him yet. Um, all that to say, we want to hear from you, Please send email, letter, pigeon carrier if you need to do so, but let us hear from you. Our hope is to ordain Merrick in September, so we'll give you a couple of months here, a window here for you to voice your input should you choose to do so. Uh, we want to hear from you.
All right. With that being said, we're going to turn now to the Word of God. We are continuing our study through the doctrines that define us. We're nearly completed. Uh, next week will be the last in the series. Merrick will be preaching, speaking of Merrick, so Merrick will be preaching next Sunday, and he will be preaching on the subject of the end times. And so Merrick is going to come up here and clear up all the confusion and set us all straight on how it's all going to end. Yes, excellent, yeah. No pressure, Merrick, at all, and I'm sure no one will be writing critiques or concerns regarding your call to pastoral ministry by what millennial position you take next week or anything like that. We have that to look forward to, but I'm looking forward to today's text as well. We, are, we have the opportunity today to share one of the greatest passages in Scripture, the Great Commission. Uh, this passage is our central mission. It is the mission that governs our lives as followers of Jesus, and it is the mission that governs the life of this church. Uh, this is the church's mission. And in Matthew's Gospel, these are the last recorded words of Jesus. And this is what he wants to leave us with. So let's look at this all-important passage together. Matthew chapter 28 I invite you to follow along as I read verses 16 through 20. This is the word of God. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord bless now the preaching and the believing of his word uh, these are these words that we just read. These words changed the lives of these disciples that were with Jesus. They changed their lives forever. Uh, these these men would never forget this moment. They would never forget this day as Jesus told them why he left them here on earth. He was about to ascend. He was about to go up to the Father. But he would leave them here on earth, and he would leave them to stay here, but not just to stay here, but to stay and go. They were to go and make disciples of all nations. These were the last words of Jesus recorded in Matthew for his disciples. And my question for you to begin this morning is, how much weight are you giving to these words in your life? We usually give weight to someone's last words. They hold a particular weight to us. How much weight are you giving these words in your life? To be a Christian is to be on mission. Jesus sent us out on a mission. It's one that lasts until he comes again, until the end of the age, Jesus says. So this is a mission that's still going on. And it's a mission that extends to the ends of the earth. It's encompassing all nations. It's a mission that includes every Christian everywhere. It's a mission that governs our lives, and it is a mission that governs this church. Uh, one of the things I want to show you today is that Christians on mission need churches committed to mission. Christians on mission need churches committed to mission, and that's because the, the work of mission, the mission work, can never be separated from church work. The two are inseparably linked. And so we're going to see all this as we work through our passage here today. I've got three points to work us through it. Uh, the first is the basis of our mission, the basis of our mission. The commission to go and make disciples of all nations is grounded in a reality. It is based upon a truth that Jesus has all authority over the nations and all authority over every life. So why do we go make disciples? 
Why do we go and share the gospel and lead people to be baptized and identify with Jesus? Why do we teach them to obey everything that he has commanded? The simple answer is because Jesus is Lord. This is what drives us. This is what drives mission. Uh, It is this confession of faith. And is this confession of faith. We see this throughout the book of Acts. God has made this Jesus who was crucified both Lord and Savior. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It all revolves around the Lordship of Jesus. And this is why we go. This is why we make disciples because Jesus really is Lord. And it's this reality, it's this truth that gives us courage and conviction for our mission. It gives us courage and it gives us conviction. It gives us courage because who going to share with others about Jesus Christ doesn't get afraid? Which one of us, when we think about sharing the good news of Jesus, telling other people about Jesus, which of us do not get afraid? Jesus sends us out to make disciples of all nations, and he does not care if they are Jews or Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims or animists or atheists or agnostics. Jesus sends us to everyone with the message to repent of their sins and believe in him. And it's so helpful for us to remember that when we're tempted to think, you know, who am I to tell them that they're wrong? Who am I to tell them that they're in sin? Who am I to tell them that their whole way of thinking, their whole basis of their life is wrong? We start to doubt, who am I to be telling them that they're a sinner or that that Jesus is the only way of salvation? What we need to remember is that it's not, in one sense, ultimately, it's not really us telling them that. It's Jesus telling them that. He is Lord and he has commanded that we go and give them this message. And that gives us courage in this because it's not about us and how well they receive us. It's about us being obedient to Jesus who is Lord over us and over them, whether they bow the knee to him or not right now. So it gives us courage to go because Jesus is Lord over us and Jesus is Lord over them. The courage to go to every nation and the audacity to make disciples for Jesus from followers of other lords and other religions, the authority to baptize them in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's all based on the rock-solid foundation of the reality and the truth that Jesus is Lord. He has all authority over heaven and earth. So this gives us courage, but then it also gives us conviction. It also gives us conviction. What I mean by this is, listen, we all need a heart for the lost. Right? We... Our hearts should break for the lost, right? But we also know, just like we're afraid to share our faith often, we often also know our hearts are not as broke as they should be for the lost. Sometimes they are. Often they're not. And it would be a real problem if the fuel of mission was our feelings. If it was based on how broke I feel. What we need, our greatest need in missions, we should feel broken for the plight of the lost, but our greatest need in missions is not a broken heart. Our greatest need is a conviction that Jesus is Lord and he has commanded us to go. So listen, if I, if I tell my kids, you know, if I say, okay, listen up kids, um, it's time to clean your room. I want you to go and clean your room. If I command them, to clean their room. And they come back to me and they say, Dad, we heard what you said. We've thought about what you said. We even memorized what you said. Word for word, we can say it back to you. But they didn't clean their room? Like, that's not going to fly for obedience. Right? Or if they come back to me and they said, Dad, we, we heard what you said, commanded us to go clean our rooms, we've thought about that, and here's what we're doing. We're, we've getting, we're getting some friends together from church, and we're going to have a study together with our friends about what you meant when you said, go and clean your room. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about it, we're going to try to figure this out, we're really going to 
think deeply about it. Really get this, Dad. But if they haven't cleaned their rooms, that's not going to fly. But how many of us do the same thing with Jesus? How many of us have memorized this passage we're studying this morning? How many of us have sat under sermons about it? How many of us have gotten to groups and had community group discussions about it or studied it and done a Bible study over it? How many of us know this passage, yet we're living in disobedience? I'm not trying to make everyone feel guilty. But transformation comes through conviction. Repentance and faith. So maybe you're here today, and what you are is you're like me, who's been studying this all week, and I'm so convicted by my disobedience. Not that I never evangelize, not that I don't care about missions, but I just know I'm not lined up with this as much as I should be. And the good, if, if you're like me, and that's where you are, the good news is the gospel that we have to proclaim is the gospel we need to proclaim to ourselves. That there is forgiveness. God does not want to send us out under a banner of guilt. God wants to send us out under a banner of grace. He wants us to know that we can confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so that's what some of us need to do this morning. We need to confess our sin. Remember that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. 1 John 2, 2, right? What's he say? That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. The penalty's been paid for. Jesus wiped it all away. But then what's John go on to say? He's the propitiation for our sins and also what? I know you got to memorize, you're testing me. So I'll tell you, it's the sins of the whole world. Jesus, John can't even say you're forgiven without reminding you, and this is the message you take to everybody else as well. So as much as we are forgiven this morning, we need to turn around and say, man, I want to go out and share the message of forgiveness with others. I think that's something what the Lord has for us today. Embrace the conviction, receive his forgiveness, and let that motivate you to go and share the message of forgiveness with others. Which brings us to point number two then this morning, the orders of our mission. We've looked at the basis of our mission. We have a mission, but what are the orders? What are our marching orders? The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, he commands us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are our orders. This is what we are commanded to do. Now, if you studied this passage before, you, you may know this already, already, but the original Greek here, now in it, there's actually only one verb. There's a lot of action in this passage, there's a lot of things in it, but there's actually only one verb that controls all the other actions in this passage. Now, one verb to rule them all, you could say. Yeah, that felt good, didn't some of you? Yeah, okay. Others of you are lost. It's all right, don't worry about it. So, a little audience participation here. Um, and first service had trouble with this, so let me just, let me help you out here. Audience participation means that I am inviting you to speak an answer to the question I'm about to ask you, okay? Then we have to be bold, just like we need to be bold in evangelism. So, you could be wrong in the answer that you give, and, you know, that's okay. This is a place of grace. So, let's just, audience participation what do you think the controlling verb in this passage is? All right. I heard a smattering of different, all, different answers. So if you said go, you're actually wrong. Sorry. Some of you are like, oh, I got it. No. Um, the answer is make disciples. Make disciples. That is the controlling verb. And then there are three other action words around it, used around it. What are the three, audience participation, what are the three words used around it? Go, baptize, and teach. Go, baptize, teach. These are actually participles, which means they describe for us how we are to make disciples. They're the action. This is what discipleship in action looks like. 
They fill it out for us. So let's, let's take each one in part. First, we are to go. Go. There's force in this word. And there should be. We should feel that force. Go, therefore. Go. Go and make disciples. There's, there's urgency to go evangelistically out into the world. We need to get out there. Jesus is taught elsewhere, the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers who are few. We need to get out there. Work the fields because the fields are people and the people are dying and hell is real. And that's the stark reality. And so we should go. There's urgency in our mission because as Paul says in Romans 10, how will unbelievers, how will they call on him whom they've never believed? And how will they believe of him whom they've never heard? And how will they hear of someone or hear of him unless someone goes and tells, proclaims, preaches? Friends, we cannot wait for people to come to us. I think that is the evangelistic method of many in the evangelical church. I will live a holy and provoking life. I will have a good family. I will stand out as different from the world, and I will wait for people to come. And and we should be ready when they come. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 3, that some will come, some will be provoked, some will come, and we need to be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason of the hope that we have within. So we should be ready for that, but Jesus is saying that's not the MO, that's not the main way that we carry out this mission. It's not mostly waiting, it's going. We are to go out and make disciples. We don't wait around, we seek and save the lost just like Jesus did. Now, may our urgency match that of Charles Spurgeon when he declared, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Friends, if our neighbors should perish, if family members should disappear down that broad road, if coworkers refuse the Savior, let them do so while leaping over our sober warnings and bursting through our bonds of prayers. This is the kind of urgency that should mark our mission to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. We must go to the lost, but then going to them, participle number two, We must baptize them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we learn from this, then, is evangelism is not enough. Evangelism is not enough. The Great Commission is not just a commission to go evangelize. It is so much more than that, because going without baptizing is an aborted mission. Going without baptizing is an aborted mission. And this is one reason why earlier I said, uh, you need, if you're going to be on mission, you need a church committed to biblical mission. Because great commission work is ultimately church work. Just study Acts and the rest of the New Testament. They teach us that the apostles understood and applied the great commission in and through local churches. Churches were the fruit and the focus and the fuel of their missions. Just, I mean, just think about Paul's missionary journeys. We studied them when we worked through the book of Acts. They were all essentially church planting ventures. Everywhere Paul went, he was sent by local churches, he was received into churches, his labors resulted in planting new churches, strengthening new churches, and his letters were all addressed to churches. So from Acts to Revelation, the missiology of the New Testament is primarily church-based. And we see this most clearly in the Great Commission with this command here to baptize new believers. Uh, They're to be incorporated into the church. Because as Bert taught us so well recently, baptism is a sacrament of the church and it is an exercise of the keys that Christ gave to the church in Matthew 16 and 18. Think about it this way. Baptism always involves two parties. Let me just, let me revise that. Legitimate baptisms always contain two parties. You can't baptize yourself, right? You understand that? 
Going back, you know, you can't do that. Baptism's two parties. It's one person publicly confessing their faith in Jesus Christ, and it's a second person witnessing and confirming, validating that's a true confession. So it takes Christians doing life and church together. Moreover, baptism in the New Testament was ordinarily into church bodies. Into a church. People ask, well, where is membership? Well, it, you, when you were baptized, you were just baptized into a community. That's how it worked. We see this in Acts 2.41. So those who received his words were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the church after the ascension of Christ and the preaching of Peter, and, and 3,000 people are saved. What were they added to? The book of life? I mean, their names had already been written since before the foundations of the world. No, it wasn't the book of life. They were added to the church there in Jerusalem. Just read it in context. Because mission work is never to be separated from church work. What God has joined together, no man should separate. When people are evangelized and brought to faith, they are to be brought into the body of Jesus Christ. They are to be baptized into the Lord and into his body. Which then brings us to part of, uh, participle number three, which is teaching. So, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, just like going without baptizing is an aborted mission, so baptizing without teaching is birth without growth. It's birth without growth. You, you, you can't have that. Um, the, they all must go together. With a mission. Let me give you some audience participation again here. Okay, so what are we responsible for teaching them? What does Jesus say here? Everything he commanded us to observe, that means to put into your life, to apply it, all that Jesus has commanded us. Let me just ask again, how much? How much of what Jesus commanded? All of it. Oh, so not like a, a believer's, not like a new believer's Bible study. All of it. Okay, the, the audience participation again here. Um, raise your hand if you personally observe all that Jesus has commanded. So I didn't have anybody in first service either. That's just, and, and that is because the Great Commission is a commitment to someone's whole life with Jesus. We are committed to helping each other grow up in maturity in Christ. Uh, to grow up, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus' command in the Great Commission is both to multiply and mature disciples. Which again is why Great Commission work is church work. Because so much of the maturing happens through the preaching of God's word in the gathering of the Christians, through discipleship classes or parent youth meetings or through meetings in fellowship, one-on-one -on -one, or in community group. Commitment to the Great Commission is commitment to helping each other mature up in Jesus all the way. Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So, we have going with the gospel, we have baptizing into Jesus and the body, and we have teaching them all that Jesus commanded. Growing up, um, every family seems to have like those meals that are like family favorites, you know, like just the good old home cooking, or it's like mom's. Yeah, in my family, we grew up and it was mom's vegetable soup. 
That's what we called it. It had a bunch of beef in it also, so I don't know why we just called it vegetable soup, but we called it vegetable soup. It was a family favorite, and it was a recipe that my mom had received from her mom, who had received from her mom. Preserved on this little three-by card that's you know, smattered with food, and, and we loved it. And so on that recipe card right there, all the ingredients laid out specifically that you need to make this meal that we loved. And the Great Commission is kind of like that. Jesus gives us each ingredient we need for this mission. And we can't leave one of them out. They all go together for the fulfilling and the completing of the mission. We go, we baptize, and we teach. Point number three then, point number three is the scope of our mission. The scope of our mission. Jesus commands us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The original Greek here is panta ethne. In ethne, you may hear the word ethnicities because they're related, the words are. So this is not a word that just refers to political nation states, but to ethno-linguistic groups. Um, people who have share a common language, a common cultural characteristic, common ethnicities. Uh, for short, in missions, we call them people groups. People groups. And this is an important distinction to make because... You know, a, a country, you, you may have a nation, and you may have a Christian church there, but that nation may have 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 different people groups, different languages, different heritages. And so you may have one people group reached out of 99, or out of 100, let's say. So 99 would be unreached because there's no Christian presence in that people group. This is very different than what we experience here in the United States. Um, but what I'm trying to stress here is our responsibility in the mission is to go to all peoples. This is a command for all of us. Jesus says something similar, teaches something similar in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations or all ethne, all peoples, and then the end will come. So this is something we are responsible for, getting the gospel to all peoples. Now, in talking about that, I want to show you this map that we're putting on the overhead. You maybe have seen something like this before. The green, the green places uh, are, are places where there is a gospel presence. There are Christians there, there are churches there, and the gospel is easily accessible there. So it, that doesn't mean most people are Christians there. Um, you know, I, the United States is green, and we know that there are plenty of lost people here. Uh, it's not an issue of lost or not. It's an issue of if the gospel is present there or not, accessible there or not. And so those green zones, we call them reached. The gospel's reached there. The red zones, on the other hand, they're the other end of the spectrum. They're the unreached. So the gospel has not gotten to there yet. Let me just frame this biblically here for a minute for you. You can leave the map up because we're going to keep talking about it. But let me frame this biblically here for you for a minute. Think about the Apostle Paul in Romans 15. In Romans 15, he says that he's leaving regions where people have access to the gospel to go to a country, Spain, that has no access to it. He says, a place where Christ is not named. So he's, he's never been preached there. He's, no one knows his name there. And so what Paul kind of sets up here is something different than there's lost people all around us. There's this lost category. There's lost people all around us, now, people who are not Christians, and we are called to go to them, and we're going to talk more about them. Uh, but there is this category here of places where the name of Christ, or where Christ is named, we call them reached, and places where Christ is not named, which we call unreached. And what that means if you're unreached is that in all likelihood, we're not talking about people who have rejected Jesus or you know, that they just haven't come to faith to him yet. What we're talking about is people who will, will be born and will live their whole lives and they will die and they will never hear about Jesus. 
they won't they don't know who he is um, there is and it, they don't even have access to find out about him and so that that red zones that you're looking at on the map um, just so you know that encompasses 3.2 billion people in the world that live in over 7,000 different people groups who could not find out about Jesus if they wanted to. And what I'm stressing is, is we are responsible for them. We bear some responsibility for them. We are to go to all peoples. So, what am I saying with that? Uh, am I saying we should all pack up and go? Um, you know, at cue my big announcement, we've been looking for a, a building. Well, I found one in Africa for all of us. And we're all just going to pick up and we can be one service over there. Uh, no, that's not my announcement today. Um, I'm not saying that we should all quit our jobs, but I am saying maybe some of us should. Maybe some of us should go. We want to be a church that sends people to unreached peoples, sends missionaries out. Uh, and I thank God that in the last few years we have taken responsibility to be supporting unreached peoples, uh, unreached uh, missionaries to unreached peoples. We have a couple that we are hoping to fund, and uh, and so I'm so grateful for that. And we do even more through our partnership with Sovereign Grace to reach the the unreached. So I'm grateful for that. Um, but I think we all need to wrestle with, you know, if we should go or not. If we're called to make disciples in every nation, who should go? Why shouldn't all of us? And so here's one way I think about that. Here's one way I try to think through this biblically. I think through a couple passages. So in Acts chapter 13, in Acts 13, we're told that the Holy Spirit in the church in Antioch there set apart Saul and Barnabas to take the gospel to new people. So what we see there, this is the great beginning of, of, of the great missions work in Acts, where Paul, this is his first mission work that Paul's gonna be doing. Uh, but what we see here is that the Spirit does not call everybody in the church to go. He picks out two people in the church and says, send them. And then kind of similar, again, in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 15, he, he talked about going to Spain to reach where Christ has not been named, but he doesn't say, okay, everybody in the church in Rome, let's go. We're all packing our bags. We're all going, I'll meet you there, and we're all going to go together. No, he says, I'm going, and I need your help to get there. So his expectation is, I mean, he doesn't even say, and if anybody wants to come, you can come with me. He doesn't even put the call out there. He just says, I'm going. If you, what I need from you is for you to, to help send me. So what I take from this is that the Spirit sets apart some people to go and be missionaries. And many people, he leaves where they are. Some are set apart to go. Most are left. And I think a couple of things this means for us is that we need, this is where we have to abide in Jesus. This is where we have to walk with the Spirit. Because you need clarity on if you're go, supposed to go or not. Because if you're supposed to go, you need to go. But you also need clarity if the Spirit wants you to stay. Because one, that frees you from guilt, like maybe I should go. And two, because it means you have a mission to do right here. He's leaving you to do something right here. No one's not on mission. It's just that the Spirit moves certain people into different places in that mission. The command Jesus has given us to make disciples of all nations is not a calling for a few. It is a command for us all, which means we all have a part to play. So part of what I'm doing here today and I have been this week is I've been praying that as I preach, some of you might be sensing the spirit moving in your heart, setting you aside for missionary work. Maybe even in some of you kids, it stirs in a young age where you're thinking, about mission work. And I'm praying that the Lord would raise up missionaries whom we can continue to support, or we will support. I, I want us to be a sending church. And if you do feel that sense of the Spirit moving inside of you, come and talk to us. We want to help you discern what the Lord is doing.
But if that's not you, if like me, you don't sense the Spirit setting you aside to go, then here's how I think we need to think about our responsibility to this command. Since we all bear responsibility for the nations, and I'm trying to hold out this vision, there are some nations, some peoples who have not been reached, and so we have a responsibility to get to them, to go to them. That's why we prioritize unreached peoples. We try to get to those peoples. But if we are left here to stay, if we're called to stay, I think, I think we need to think about our staying in at least two ways. First, I think it means we are called to sacrificially support those who are called to go. I think it means we are to sacrificially support those who are called to go. Now, I love what the great missionary William Carey told his, his dear friend before leaving for India. Uh, Carey told him this, I will go down into the pit if you hold the ropes. I will go down to the pit if you will hold the ropes. That friend was Andrew Fuller. He helped to go on, and, or he went on to find the, the Baptist Mission Society, and he did everything he could. He traveled all around the British Isles, raising funds, speaking with people, pre, you know, publishing articles, pre, preaching missions-related sermons, all to try and support William Carey's work in India. He held the rope. So those set aside to go overseas to the unreached, they need Christians who stay behind to hold the rope sacrificially supporting them with their finances and their prayer and their encouragement. And I just want to take this opportunity to say I am so thankful for our Missions and Mercy team here, the M&M team here at Covenant of Grace Church. You guys have become, in the last couple of years, literally our hands on the rope for this church. Uh, you are helping us to know about the needs that our missionaries that we support have, about opportunities that we have. And so you're literally like, I tried to say this in the first service and it didn't come out well and it's not now, but I was just like, you're like the, you're the skin on our hands, like on that rope holding it for us. And we need you there, and, and, but that's a responsibility you have to keep telling us about more that we can do and for us to respond to their, their leadership and the ways that they serve us. And I think it's also um, why as a church, you know, we invest so much money into supporting Sovereign Grace missions and supporting missions here. Um, we give over 15% of our, our budget away to these kinds of partnerships. Um, but we also invest in sending Bert to Brazil to strengthen brothers in the churches down there. We're going to send me to Ethiopia later this year so I can train some pastors there who are going out to spread the good news in Africa. Uh, we want to be a church that is committed to not only sending missionaries, but supporting them, holding the rope. So that's the first way we think about it if we're called to stay. The second way we think about it, if the Spirit doesn't set us aside to go, then that means He wants us to take responsibility for the mission right here. That means we take full responsibility for the mission right here. And I see this in this incredible statement by Paul in Romans 15, verse 19. He says, From Jerusalem... And all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so if you can see this on a map, he's saying from Jerusalem all the way up over past Greece, almost to Italy. He's saying, you know, these thousands of miles, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel there. Now, what could he possibly mean by that? What does that mean that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ in that huge region? Does it mean that he preached the gospel to every single person who lives in that region? I mean, surely not. That would be impossible. That's not what we're told he did at all. What we're told he did in Acts is that he planted local churches all throughout that whole strip. In places like Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and Troas and Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus and the list goes on and on. He was a church planting machine and the point is Paul had planted churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum and they're healthy churches. He's established elders there and so for him the work is done. He needs to go off where Christ has not been named and it's time for these churches to take full responsibility for the missions where they are. It's through the Christians who stay. Now we take up the responsibility to saturate that region. So if we're not set apart by the Spirit to take the gospel to new people, then it's our responsibility to take the gospel to the lost all over where we live right here. 
And friends, what a harvest field we have just in Summit County alone. I mean, I looked it up recently. I mean, there are, there are more than 450,000 people who are not a part of an evangelical church here. That's almost half a million people who do not go to an evangelical church. All around us. That's a lot of people. That is a whole lot of people. Now, so, now here's what I think can happen. A lot of us are, you know, we're involved in Christian schools and Christian homeschooling or Christian co-ops and we're involved with Christian ministries and sports things. So we get in this Christian bubble. And we can be aware of like, well, you know, so many Christians and we know the lost are out there, but we just know so many Christians, so many ministries. And we know all these churches around and we know some really big churches in this area and they're doing a whole lot for the gospel. And I think we can kind of get in our heads like, you know, is there really, like, is there that much room for us? Like, we've talked about ambitions of planting churches and and growing this church to be a resource, you know, but really is there, friends, 500,000 people not in an evangelical church. That is so many people if we if we saw 1000 people converted i mean can you imagine that that's an audacious goal right can you imagine if we saw one 3000 added to jerusalem we're not that church i'm not that preacher i'm no peter but if we saw 1000 that would still only be a fourth of a percent of the lost people here in this county. There's so many people. And you know many of them. They are your family. They are your friends. They are your neighbors. They are your mechanic or your medical assistant or whoever it is. The Lord has sovereignly placed you to go to these people and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And that's why I'm so glad that we've been doing the Proclaim course to stir us up. And we've got Scott and Joel and Amos helping to lead the charge and thinking about evangelistic outreaches. And Because God is doing something in us, not just through this word, but in our spirit that we want to respond to. Or when the Lord calls us to go, we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord. Also, can I just share with you, I've been thinking this week, I've been kind of dreaming and praying some this week. I I know many of you have a heart for the unreached, those places in red zones, but you don't sense the Spirit leading you to go, and so you're here, and so what might you do? And um, my own thoughts and mind have been turning to how many immigrants are settled here, many of them in that North Hill neighborhood that some of you already serve in ministries related to, but you know, I looked it up this week. There are pe- thousands of people who have settled here from, this is not the whole list, but just listen to this, Bhutan, Nepal, Uzbekistan, Thailand, Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan. Now what's significant about the, the reason I chose those eight are those are all categorized as unreached nations. But they have moved right here. So what might the Lord, what might the Lord want us to do? If we are prioritizing the unreached, what might he do to stir in us to strategically seek out those people? So again, Paul Selby shared about a ministry that he serves with, and I know Scott's been involved with ministries in North Hill, and so there are already folks that are already involved, plugged in there, but if this is something that stirs your heart, that might be a way for you to just immediately start plugging in and seeking out unreached peoples that are in our own backyard. Because here's the thing, friends, and, and I'll close with this. It's good to remember that every Christian is a Christian 
because another Christian did something. Every Christian is a Christian because another Christian left their comfort zone, counted the cost, and reached out to you with the gospel. It might have been your parent uh, in their long suffering with you until you actually received the gospel. It might have been a friend. It might have been a pastor. It could have even been a stranger preaching on the street. The point is you were reached by a Christian obeying this command to go and make disciples of all nations. And today Jesus is addressing us, renewing our minds, reminding us that he has sent us out to go and do the same. So go with faith. The Lord is going to convert people and you are going to be a part of it. Go with faith. Our mission will succeed. I can't tell you what it's going to look like, but I know the promise of Jesus Christ that he will build his church. So go with faith. Go with expectancy. Go with open hearts and eyes. And not only that, go with Jesus Christ, because that's exactly how Jesus ends this, this, um, this command. It's with the precious promise that through all of this and until the very end, Jesus will be with us. And that's what makes all the difference when we encounter someone who is dead in their sins. We have no power in ourselves to make them alive. All we do is give them words. All we do is give them an example to see. But Jesus can strike the match to that and flame alive inside their hearts. Jesus goes with us. So no matter what difficulty we encounter, no matter how much persecution we encounter, no, much, no matter how much it might cost us, ultimately our mission cannot fail. Jesus is with us, Jesus builds his church, and Jesus sends us out. So let's go with faith and see what Jesus wants to do. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just commit this mission, our mission, your mission, we commit it to you, God. There is a certain sense when you claim all authority in heaven and on earth, when you claim lordship, Lord, um, our response can only really be true surrender. God, here's my life. Use it. I mean, isn't that what the disciples were doing right there? They were worshiping at your feet. And I love that it includes there, you included Jesus, that some doubted. But here they are, they're worshiping, but some are struggling with some doubt. But you don't, you don't separate them and say, okay, all you who are not struggling with doubt, I have a mission for you. All you struggling with doubt, let's work on your faith. And when you're done and ready, I'll send you out. No, you just, you call all of us, Lord. All of us who worship you, even if we're struggling some, you send all of us out. Because the mission's not ultimately dependent upon us. It's dependent upon you. You go with us. So we can go weak, and we can go struggling, and we can go with our trials and our temptations, and yet you can be faithful, and you can make it alive. So, Lord, we do. We commit all of this to you, and our lives are surrendered to you, Lord. Use us. Lord, I just I want to pray that we would witness, we would see miracles of conversion before our eyes. Do this for your glory, we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let me invite you.